Okay, how's that? Good. Is it, can you hear me at the back? All right, go past the first test. So I wanted to continue the theme of the, uh, what's called the Brahma Viharas, a teaching from the Buddha. Brahma Viharas means the abodes of the heart, places in places that, that we can dwell in our heart, places that we have the capacity to know in our experience and, and live in, potentially. So the last of these um, is the quality of equanimity. So the, the first... Uh, Quality is loving kindness, metta. Second is <coughs> compassion. When that quality of the heart, open heartedness, is turned to suffering, and when that heart is turned towards joy and happiness, it becomes mudita, appreciative joy. So we talked about those the last few weeks. And today I'd like to talk about this quality of equanimity, which uh, isn't usually a so isn't, it's not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of a heart quality. You might think love and joy and compassion, quite natural expressions. And this, this putting of the, this quality of equanimity is, a, is an interesting addition to this list of where we can dwell in our heart. So, but maybe you can just take a moment to think about a time that you've been, you've, you've been, you've had equanimity, equanimity, equanimity being this quality of ease, of uh, non-resistance of uh, unconditional acceptance with what's happening, with the way things are, with the way we are, with the way life is presenting. It's this non—it's this complete open meeting, and not struggling with, not fighting it, but just allowing it. However horrible, however beautiful, however juicy, however dry, we meet it as it is. So if you take a moment to reflect on times that you may have touched that in yourself, maybe you might be thinking, God, I've never touched that. (laughs) It's so hard for me to accept things. It's I'm always struggling or resisting or wanting it to be better than it is or wanting myself to be different than I am. But we have our moments, you know. Sometimes they take us by surprise. Sometimes they come when we're really pushed up against our edge. Sometimes when we have some really difficult news of the health or the, of ourselves or a loved one, or we hear the death of somebody, or you know, some of these life-changing circumstances, sometimes we find we actually have the deepest capacity to surrender. You know, but if our computer keeps, you know, the screen keeps disappearing or the the computer keeps crashing, you know, we might find it incredibly irritating, you know, or the traffic being always too much on the 101 or something. We may, we may see how much lack of equanimity we have in the day-to-day. But when we are in this quality, it is actually a very, it's, there's a certain fullness of the heart. The heart is not guarded or protected. It's not defending it's not resisting. And so it's very open, fluid. So there's a story um, from the Zen tradition, a kind of classic story of equanimity, where during one of the, uh, one of the Civil War periods in Japan, there was a great warlord who was... Um, in, in battle with whoever he was fighting with. And um, so he was moving through this territory and his troops were notoriously uh, violent and aggressive and he was renowned to be a very violent warlord. And so everybody fleed. The children, the families, uh, the farmers, the whole town and the village cleared out and the monasteries, all the monks fled because this person was also very anti-religious. So with one particular monastery, the, the, the abbot of the monastery stayed. So he sat in his zendo, in his meditation hall, in meditation. And word got back to the warlord that everybody had fled except this one zen master. 
And the warlock thought, how audacious, you know, how dare, who, who does this man think he is to not flee in the, in the face of my great power? So the warlord goes stomping into the zendo, doesn't take off his shoes, walks right up to the, the abbot, who's sitting there in complete serenity and meditation. And the warlord says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know I could run you through with a sword without blinking an eye? And the Zen master says, yes, I know who you are. But maybe you don't know who I am. You could run me through with the sword, and I would not blink an eye. And at that, the warlord realized who was the real master. This person was the master of his own mind, his own heart, had complete equanimity, even in the face of death. And so the story goes, the, the warlord became a student of the master. <laughs> so this quality of equanimity is a very patient acceptance and allowing of the way things are. And sometimes when we hear about this, this, this quality, we can feel like, it can sound like it's passive, and, I, and I'll speak to that later, that it doesn't just mean we, we become a doormat to things, that we don't have, we become this sort, of, this sort of mute zombie that just like lets every experience in and doesn't have any response. We can, of course we have a response and we may want to have, we may want to act, but we can do that from a place of equanimity rather than reactivity. And that's really what these uh, teachings are giving us, that choice, that possibility, that option to be fully in the world, fully engaged in the world, not resisting what's really here, whether it's difficult or painful, and also coming up with a wise response. This is uh, from Byron Katie. She says, Just when I think that life is so good and it can't get any better, the phone rings and life gets better. I love that music. As I walk towards the phone, there's a knock at the door. Who could it be? I walk towards the door filled with the given, the fragrance of vegetables, the sound of the phone, and I've done nothing for any of it. I trip and fall over. The floor is so unfailingly there. I experience its texture, its security, its lack of complaint. In fact, the opposite. It gives itself entirely to me. I feel its coolness as I lie on it. Obviously, it was time for a little rest. (laughs) The floor accepts me unconditionally and holds me without impatience. As I get up, it doesn't say, come back, come back. You're deserting me. You owe me. You didn't thank me. You're ungrateful. No, it's just like me. It does its job. It is what it is. The fist knocks. The phone rings. The salad waits. The floor lets go of me. Life is good. So that's a very uh, unusual response to tripping over. <laughs> I wonder what we would do if we tripped over as we're preparing uh, vegetable salads and the door rings and beating ourselves up and why didn't they put the carpet on the floor? The floor's so hard and I'm so unmindful. Call myself a meditator. So you know, I like that example because it's very mundane, and so many of the mo- so many moments of our day are filled with with little times that we're that we're challenged to be, you know, to receive what's here. The traffic, our partner shouting, getting to an appointment and missing it, you know, looking at the stock market and realize we've lost another five percent today. Whatever the particulars of our day, we know this full of opportunities. So I was talking to somebody before the talk, and, and she said, oh, I hope you're going to talk about your nature story, about your time in nature. I spend a lot of my time outside, if I can, in the wilderness, and backpacking and kayaking and leading meditation retreats outside. And, and one of the reasons I do the, do the retreats outside, not only because it's beautiful and it's serene and it's deeply silent and all of that, but because you never know what you're going to get. It's completely unpredictable. 
every moment I, I plan my schedule about half an hour in advance. Because if I plan out the whole day, I know the weather changes, it starts raining, becomes too cold to sit, you know, all kinds of different conditions show up. So it requires a lot of equanimity to let go of what I think should happen. You know, I did this retreat down, uh, we did a, it was a beautiful um, raft, ra- river rafting retreat. We rafted seven days down, this, down the Green River, the tranquil part of the Green River, uh, through these beautiful ancient canyon walls. Um, and I did it a few times, a few years, in a f- every year. And it was you know, beautiful weather, it's warm, it's delicious, it's serene. And this year it um, decided to give us a little work. So this year Utah had its annual rainfall in the 10 days we were out. <laughs> and, you know, you don't expect a lot of rain when you go to Utah, and it's dry as dry can be, you know. And so, everyone, you know, most people just brought shorts and T-shirts and, you know... You know, whatever they brought. You know, I mean, you bring waterproofs just because you're out in the wilderness. But my waterproofs decided to leak um, pretty early on, and um, it was really cold and really wet. <laughs> and everyone's over the, over the days. Your bag gets wet. The sleeping bag gets wet. We we're sleeping on these. You jump off the raft onto these what are usually beautiful sandbanks, and they were like mud banks. <laughs> you jump up up to your knees in clay. And, of course, we're in these canyon walls. There's no, like, you know, Motel 6 just at the next stop or Starbucks down the road to drive. No, there's just you know, seven days, and then we get, we get hauled out. So it was a great place to practice equanimity. You know, sitting, <laughs> cold clothes, wet, waterproofs, shivering, damp sleeping bag wrapped around, and um, watching the mind. Sometimes the mind was incredibly peaceful. Sometimes it was incredibly, oh my God, this is the worst thing. And my, all these poor people I dragged out here and they're going to hate me. And you know, It turned out to be a phenomenal trip. It wasn't an easy trip. But it was just great to watch the mind. That's why I do those trips because you have to work with your mind. Sometimes retreats actually can be too easy in some ways, too, too, um, too predictable, too you know, familiar. So it's nice to shake things up a little bit. So, um, as I said, so it doesn't, it's, equanimity is not just about lying down and accepting what is, but we also, you know, we have equanimity with our response to things. You know, some of you may hear news about some tragedy or some ecological catastrophe or whatever, and feel moved to respond, and, that's, and you have equanimity with that. That's also... Some of you may not be moved, and that's also true. So it doesn't look a certain way. This is a story from uh, a young lama, a 13-year-old lama who was interviewed about... He was um, he has an American father and a Tibetan mother. He was um, and raised somewhat traditionally uh, for many years as a, as a Rinpoche, as a teacher in, in Asia, and then moved back to his, with his family in Wyoming, and he was, a, he was one of the youngest teachers, Buddhist. He was 13 when he started teaching. So this is an interview with him when he's a teenager. And it really speaks to this, just how you work with difficulty and with having equanimity. So the interviewer says, It must be hard enough to be a 13-year-old boy in America and not to mention a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection with the Dharma? It's kind of weird. I have two older brothers and they tease me about it. They call me Shrimpache. <laughs> The kids at school don't know I'm a llama. I would never tell them. Why not? I get dissed enough as it is just being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. How do you deal with the people trying to hurt you? It's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends when my family has been treated so badly by the Chinese, but this is America. i got to live here with my own karma. Some skinner doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants to stomp on my head. You're in a gang? Yeah, it's, you know, for protection. It's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own. But by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we talk about something else? 
Sure. Do you like your students? Ah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they come for the teachings, but when they get into into the interview room, they talk about other stuff. Yeah, what other stuff? Uh, They mainly talk about the opposite sex. Men talk about problems with their wives, and women talk about their husbands and boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have little enough time as it is with school and little league and my chores, and they want want me to be a shrink or something. And I'm only 13. I mean, I've got girlfriends and all, but what do I know about relationships? So what do you tell them? I talked to my dad about it, and he gave me a stack of business cards from one of his friends, a psychologist. <laughs> I just hand my students one of the cards when they start talking about relationships. I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me and my brothers and sisters to Dairy Queen. It's cool. <laughs> Buddhism is no big deal. It's like being a doctor. They're suffering, you diagnose it, you give someone a prescription, and hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, though. They all want to be pharmacists and sit around discussing types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine and come back next week. I mean, don't get me wrong, Buddhism is about choice. So you're fully qualified to teach then? Sure. I mostly teach Tonglen, giving and receiving. It's what I think works best at times when people are trying to kill you or too many changes are happening at once, which seems to be most of the, most of the time in this country. You're basically like a giant filter, like an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air and you breathe out the pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. I teach people how to filter and cool things down. (laughs) So if you can cool things down, why do you need to be in a gang? It's a samsara nirvana thing. If a guy disses me, I can just tell myself that he really doesn't exist separate from me. You know, it's like he's dissing himself. That works fine. But what happens when he stops talking and starts beating on me? You need to be able to take care of yourself so you don't get killed. We live in samsara, and spacing out about nirvana doesn't help anybody. Don't you see any contradictions in that? The Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. And the Lama laughs. Oh, yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher, but he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him. And when he's traveling... What do you think would happen if some butthead pulls a gun on his holiness? Do you think those dozen bodyguards will practice nonviolence or bust some karate move on him? <laughs> no way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun and he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> so that's practical equanimity. It's actually really a great teaching. It's like, you know, he clearly has a difficult time as a young Tibetan man growing up in Wyoming, and he knows the teaching, he knows the truth, and he's also really practical. He's really wise, you know. And so, so this, this, teaching, this teaching, especially on equanimity, is about being wise. How do we live in this world with these challenges and struggles and conflicts and violence and racism and all, the, all of it? So sometimes um, equanimity is uh, misunderstood as a kind of a cool indifference, like a sort of a, where we're pulled back from the world and we're not really that bothered. That's called the near, the near enemy of um, equanimity. All these Brahmaviharas have near and far enemies. The near enemy is it looks kind of like someone's cooled out, like someone's equanimous, but really they're actually disconnected and cut off there's a slight element of aversion and pushing away what's true. And equanimity is actually fully engaged. We're fully, you know, with this practice of mindfulness, we're fully connected, embracing the moment, not one step back. So another term for that is spiritual bypassing, you know, where we, um, with, we you know, think we're being really cool, but we're doing anything to meditate away that pain because we really don't want to be feeling some knee pain or some emotional pain. So we, we, we transcend in whatever way we can, or we space out, we think. And it takes a lot of uh, courage and fearlessness to really live in the world with equanimity, to live in the world with any kind of presence, with any kind of open-hearted presence, to live in a world that's full of difficulty, Joy, sorrow, beauty, pain, 
and to stay open. You know, because that it's that's not easy, as you know, living in this in this body in this world at this time. This is a story from uh, uh, Hakuin, who is one of the great uh, Zen teachers of Japan. So um, he was a young man, became a great uh, student and teacher, and he moves back to his hometown to become the abbot of a local monastery. And the story goes on. A beautiful Japanese girl whose parents owned a food stall who lived near him, and one day without warning, her parents discovered that she was pregnant. This made her parents angry. The girl would not confess who the man was, but after much embarrassment, she named Hakuin, the Zen teacher, as, her, as the father. In great anger, the parents went to the Zen master and scolded him in front of all of his students. All Hakuin would say was, hmm, is that so? After the baby was born, it was entrusted to Hakuin's care. By this time, he had lost his reputation and his students. However, Hakuin was not disturbed and enjoyed taking care of the little boy. He obtained milk and other essentials the boy needed from his neighbors. A year later, the girl mother couldn't stand it any longer. She confessed the truth to her parents. The real father of the boy was not Hakuin, but a young man from the local fish market. The father and the mother of the girl went to Hakuin at once. They asked his forgiveness and apologized profusely to get the boy back. Although Hakuin by this time had loved the child as his own, he was willing. In giving up the boy, all he said was, is that so? So that's an example of someone with great equanimity that can you know, withstand curses and disrepute and blame and anger and dealing with a very difficult situation, both receiving and also letting go of this, this love for the boy. I read this wonderful story of a. There's a wonderful book called. Um, I think it's called Stories from the Jungle. Buddha in the Jungle. That's right, Buddha in the Jungle. Um, but these old, all these old stories of Thai monks and nuns who would wander around the, the jungles in in Thailand at the time. This is turn of the century, last century, when there was a lot of tigers and crocodiles, and you know, it was that's a lot, fair bit of risk to wandering as a monk on your own. And this particular monk uh, had gone for arms round, had his lunch, and was going to go bathe in, in two of the local ponds by the village. And the villagers said, well, don't go in, in the big one, because that's where the crocodiles hang out, but go the small one. And the monk, this monk was a particularly fearless monk, said, ah, whatever. So he goes and bathes in, in the big pond. And he's you know, up to his waist. And surprise, surprise, some croc- this crocodile comes up to him. And he stands incredibly still. And the crocodile gets closer and closer, just his little eyes peering out the water. So I wonder how your equanimity would be in that situation. So the crocodile gets so close, he bumps his nose on the monk's chest. And the monk's chanting some meta chants to the, to the crocodile. Stand perfectly still. And then after a certain while, the crocodile kind of gets bored and just goes on his own way. Of course, it became a very famous story and all of that. But maybe we don't face crocodiles, but maybe we face our own kind of crocodiles in our relationships or in our work or in our finances. Or So we have this capacity, this beautiful capacity, and meditation supports this capacity requires a lot of strength to keep showing up to difficult situations. You know, a dear friend of mine recently diagnosed with Parkinson's. He's a young man, very healthy, been living organically all his life, and suddenly out of the blue gets Parkinson's. And I've watched his struggle. Sometimes he can really find that deep capacity for surrender and acceptance and ease. And other times the symptoms get really strong and really difficult, and he gets overwhelmed by the the pain. You know, so it's not black or white. We go through in, in and out of uh, capacity to touch that. And I just think about the times that we're living in. There's such a tremendous loss going on right now, economically. You know, just the, the millions of people being laid off, not just in America, but all around the world. Millions of people who've lost their savings, lost their livelihood, lost their health care, lost a huge amount tremendous pressure 
and tremendous need to find this capacity in ourselves to be at ease with the changing circumstances. There's a line that goes something like, insecurity is the only security there is. Insecurity is the only form of security there is. Nothing is stable, nothing is guaranteed in this life, not even for a minute. So what do we draw on? How do we meet that? How do we keep opening? How do we not shut down and recoil and get just resentful and bitter and self-pitiful and victim-like? So in relationship to the Brahma Viharas, the, the, the way equanimity, it's seen that equanimity pervades all of the, all of, all of the qualities of love, compassion, and, and appreciative joy. With loving-kindness, the, the quality of equanimity that, that fuels the, the metta, the loving-kindness, is the quality of unconditionality, that our love can be really, had, really does have the potential capacity to really love equally, to love people we don't like, people who may have harmed us, people we don't know. I remember watching um, the inauguration and watching... Um, Dick Cheney being wheeled up there around in the wheelchair. You know, and it was very, I thought it was very sad, actually. It was a very sad day. You know, of course, it was a very sad day for any, any of the outgoing presidents and vice presidents. Um, and, um, you know, for whatever what kind of relationship you may have to Dick Cheney, and I have my own. Um, and it was interesting to see that the heart, you know, the heart has this capacity to love. You know, to care for even people we might not like, even for people we think aren't doing such great things in the world. You know, sometimes see this in relationships, and especially former relationships, this quality of equanimity that fuels this unconditional quality of love that we can love um, even if our relationships don't work out even if they turn into, di- into different kinds of relationships, even if our former partners find love and find the love that they never got from us, you know, find the conditions they never got from us, you know, can we extend that quality of heart? I was on a retreat uh, in February teaching a loving-kindness retreat on the East Coast with Sharon Salzburg and this, this question came up, which often comes up with loving-kindness and this, this, this capacity of the heart to love all things and to wish all beings or life to be happy. She said, it's impossible. How can you want all life to be happy because it ain't going to be happy? We, how can you wish all animals to be happy when they're all eating each other? You know? If they don't eat each other, then they're all gonna, they'll die. So that's so, but to survive, they have to eat each other. So how can we wish happiness? For, you know, it's one of those contradictory paradoxes. That we, you know, and so this woman, you know, was left with this, you know, burning paradox. There's no simple answer to that. And she took a walk outside, and as she was walking, she noticed the sky where she was was this flurry of feathers coming from from above. Mm-hmm. And there, her answer was: there was a, a sparrowhawk way up in the tree had caught a little chickadee, and was having its lunch on the chickadee. And she found that she was able to have the, the capacity to love both. You know, that that is the reality of this life. Life eats other life. And we can love, we can have the, the, the capacity to love both equally and to accept the reality that this is part of, part of life. And then we have the quality of compassion. You know, and I talked a lot about this a couple of weeks ago that, you know, with, with this quality of compassion, which is the this quality of the heart turned towards suffering and pain, requires a tremendous amount of equanimity to be able to stay steady in the middle of suffering. You know, when we know when we have a loved one who's suffering or a whole you know a whole country through famine or warfare or violence, the mind wants to go, this is wrong, this is fair, this, should, this is unfair, this shouldn't be happening. The people who are the perpetrators should be imprisoned or worse. Or, you know, We come up with all kinds of reasons why this is wrong. And yes, it maybe is wrong. And it's how it is. 
So this teaching is asking us, can we meet what's happening first? Can we meet the reality? This is how it is. There is suffering. There is great suffering. There's enormous suffering that's almost too big to hold. And equanimity allows us to not be so overwhelmed with that, to not take it so personally. And I think one of the hardest places for us to practice equanimity or practice compassion is with people who share the same last name as us. <laughs> you know, the people that most get under our skin is the people that know us the best, right? Know us well. And just, they just seem to know how to push those buttons, especially if they're younger than us especially if they're our offspring or they're our partners. This is, uh, this is a cartoon from Bizarro. So it's a picture of a man who's just returned from work, from his nine to five, it looks like, and he's reading a note pinned to the door from, looks like, his departed other half. And uh, it's, the note says, Dear Kirby, after all these years of meditation and in spite of your Endless ridicule, I have finally reached universal consciousness. I have transcended to a higher plane. I am everywhere and nowhere, non-existent and eternal, all-seeing and all-knowing. You, on the other hand, can go suck an egg. (laughs) So, what do you know? We're human. There may be limits to our heart. You know, I think it's important to remember that this quality of equanimity, this unconditional acceptance, is really, I think of as a quite an advanced practice. To really be able to welcome and invite and feel at ease with whatever circumstance or situation. How many people do you know who live in that way? Maybe we can touch it at times in our lives, but it's really really a challenging... these, These teachings offer these potentials, these ideals, these capacities of human nature. And it's very easy... Is to um, take those ideals, right, and then what? Beat ourselves up because we don't meet up to them. Because we don't, we're not perfectly balanced. You know, I sometimes hear these reports when I work with students. They'll, you know, someone say, "You know, my partner just left me and." I realize that because of that, I'm going to lose the house, and it seems like my job at work is really uncertain too. And, I, and I'm finding myself, I'm so reactive, and I, sh- I know I should be more, more equanimous and more at peace. You know, I feel like I'm really slacking. I'm really not getting this, this Buddhist practice thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have these really high standards for ourselves. It's great to have an ideal and not to use it as a battering ram for when we don't meet up to it. And it makes it even more difficult to practice equanimity if we're constantly thinking our practice of equanimity isn't up to snuff. Oh, you're so reactive. God, it's just traffic. Get over yourself. And then we're human. We have good days, we have bad days. Right, so can we embrace that, you know, these, 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 these Brahma Viharas work together. When we lose our reactivity, when we lose our equanimity, what's that like? It's suffering, it's pain, because we're reacting, we're contracted, we're resistant. In that moment, what's needed is not equanimity, is kindness. Kindness and compassion for the suffering we're in. Or when, uh, you know, our best friend tells us, you know, they found the love of their life, and they've, you know, had a triple pay raise, and they found this perfect house for them to move into, and... And you find yourself getting a little tight, like, God, I wish that was me. God, I mean, I'm happy for you, but I really hate you, actually. I hope you lose your jaw. No. And then we go, oh, God, I can't believe I said that to my best friend. I can't believe I, my heart was that selfish. Oh, yeah, that's that too. Can we meet that? 
in that beautiful poem by Rumi that, that we read a lot up here in the guest house, you know, the, um, he talks about this crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Welcome and entertain them all. You know, greet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Whatever it is, joy, sadness, and meanness comes an unexpected visitor. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Or maybe we don't have to laugh as we invite them in, but we can at least meet them. Let's start with that. Oh, look at this, I'm really jealous. Can I have some equanimity, some ease, some acceptance? Oh yeah, I'm really jealous right now. Or I'm feeling really deficient right now. I'm feeling so unworthy compared to what I've just heard from somebody who's having a great time or a great life or a great success. You know? So in the way that, you know, as, as these practices, these qualities feed back and forwards, the the love and the compassion um, allow the equanimity, this, this, this what can perceived as coolness, um, stops the stops the equanimity from going into coldness, going into this removedness, keeps it engaged and full and juicy. You know, I was at. Um, I go to this thing uh, called Sweat Your Prayers. It's a wonderful, um, it's like a class. It's a two-hour movement form. Um, and I was watching a couple of friends of mine. They were dancing. They were kind of smooching, really. But they, I know they've just fallen in love, and they're completely in love, and they're in that delightful honeymoon phase, and you wish that it would last forever. And, um, and they, were just, they were just like radiating love. And it was just—I was just having this delightful time watching them, and just, you know, it's a very exquisite thing to see when people are just just completely enraptured with each other. And I was reflecting on this quality of equanimity, and one of the things I think equanimity does is it helps us to stop being self-referencing. You know, I could easily look at that and going, "God, I don't have that," or you know, "I don't have it quite that good," or "What's wrong with my relationship?" or it, that, that's all just projection. You know, I'll get over it in two months. They'll see what, it's, what each other's really like, and they'll hate each other. You know. <laughs> you know, the quality of equanimity that is pervaded with this quality of mudita, of joy, of, of appreciating the joy and the happiness or the love or the, whatever somebody's feeling, you know, is this, when you see all these Buddhas, they, they, they have this very sweet smile, and it's co- co- considered the smile of equanimity. Where the, the, there's a sense of full presence, but there's a kind of inner dignity and unruffledness and unruffability. And it's incredibly sweet. And it's a heartful experience. So we all have our stories, right? our histories of times when we can meet our experience with equanimity in times when we find it really intolerable, where we loathe or fear or hate aspects of ourselves or our experience, our experience in the world. So we each have our own burden, as they say. And I have a lot of friends who have young children you know, and I hear the stories of, of, you know, some of them have colicky babies and some of them have babies that haven't slept for a couple of years and you know, they haven't slept for a couple of years and their equanimity is a little challenge, you could say. I mean, they're just about to pull their hair out and you know, pull each other's hair out. And so we each have our situations. So what are yours when you think about your, your, your own life, your body, your heart, your relationship, where is it that's really an edge for you? So one of the greatest supports for, mind, for equanimity is this, is this practice we teach here of mindfulness. As I said at the beginning, with mindfulness we're sitting in the heat of the moment, in the cauldron, in the fire of the present moment, willing and inviting anything to appear cultivating the capacity to be at ease with the incredible bliss and joy and rapture that might burn through, 
or the, the terrible sadness and losses and griefs and wounds and fears that we may have also experienced. And we sit there in the middle like these Buddhas, just steady, or as steady as we can. And we learn how to find that place of grounded, centered immovability, non-reactivity, where we're not recoiling, we're not chasing something, we're just, just here, just profoundly present. It's a beautiful gift that we give to ourselves. It's a beautiful gift we give to others. Maybe you know people who really um, you know, imbibe this quality, you know, who just seem to be steeped in this quality of equanimity. And they're like beacons of, of peace and coolness. It's like cooling salve on a, on a, on a, on a burning wound. You know, being around Thich Nhat Hanh, is a good, for me, is a good example. Wonderful Vietnamese teacher. He sometimes comes here, he used to in the past anyway, and do day-long retreats, and then he'd do these walking meditations, and he would walk you know, up the hill. There's two and a half thousand people, so you know, about 5% of the people get to actually get up and walk because he walks so slowly, so mindfully, so peacefully, and just this radiance of cool equanimity just pervades. It's beautiful. Sometimes the hardest place for us to have this quality of equanimity is with the with the mundane. You know, maybe we're okay with the dramas and the the intensity and the the heat and the passion and the but not when life is just grey. You know, I think I think as a culture we don't like to hang out with the grey, with the neutral, with the mundane, with the ordinary, with the simple, with the what we would often call as boring. You know, we, we, I think we're, as a culture, terrified of the boring. This is from Billy Collins, called I Ask You. What scene would I rather be en- enveloped in than this one? An ordinary night at the kitchen table, an ease in a box of floral wallpaper, white cabinets full of glass, the telephone silent, a pen tilted back in my hand. It gives me time to think about the leaves gathering in corners, lichen greening the high gray rocks and the world sailing on beyond the dunes, huge ocean-going history bubbling in its wake. Outside of this room, there is nothing that I need, not a job that would allow me to row to work or a coffee-colored Aston Martin DB4 with cracked green leather seats. No, it's all right here, the clear ovals of a glass of water, a small crate of oranges, a book on Stalin, an old snarling fish in a frame on the wall. And these three candles, each a different height, singing in perfect harmony. So forgive me if I lower my head and listen to the short bass candle as he takes a solo, while my heart thrums under my shirt, frog at the edge of a pond, and my thoughts fly off to a province composed of one enormous sky, about a million empty branches. So how are we sitting when we are sitting at home quietly, at our kitchen table, being with ourselves, doing nothing. How is the equanimity then? Are we wanting something more to happen, something special, something juicy, something wishing that our lives were different, thinking that life lives outside the, outside the door? So the practice of, 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 of um, equanimity, which all these practices have a... Have a formal practice, and the, the practice is one of saying these intentional phrases. So um, the phrases of equanimity, um, as they're applied to the, the other three Brahma-viharas, the love, compassion, and appreciative joy, when we're wishing for someone's happiness to be free of suffering, to be f- for their success to be full and, and to continue to grow, in this context, the equanimity is, no matter what I wish for you, Things are as they are. No matter what I wish for you, no matter how much I want you to be happy, things will be as they are. Things will be as they are. This is how it is. Things are as they are. So no matter how much you might wish for your partner or your child or your child who's just about to go into college or, you know, no matter how much we love somebody, we also have to let go. 
and, 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 and meet the truth that this is, life will be how it is, according, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, according to karma, according to whatever actions, whatever you've, actions you have sown, you, will reap, you, you are the heirs of your own actions. You reap the consequences of your past actions. So things will be as they are, according to lawful conditions. And what gets in the way of us being able to abide in that is when we get attached, when we get we have this very powerful force of attachment. We want things to be a certain way. We want ourselves to be a certain way. We want our career to be a certain way. We want our bank account to be a certain way. We want our partners to talk to us in a certain way. We want our friends to mirror us in a certain way. We want the political situation to be a certain way. The more we're attached to that, the more we resist actually how it is. It blinds us. The same when we resist not wanting things to be a certain way. We were equally attached to not wanting things to be a certain way. Not wanting to be cold or lonely or broke or without health care or you know, whatever situation. Don't want the person next to me is breathing too loud. I don't want that. You know, I'm going to kill him next time. You know, I remember when I first came to the States, and you know, I came from, I'm from England, and um, I love my tea. I'm, you know, in England, we, you know, we live on tea. It's like, a, it's like water. You, know, you don't drink water, you just drink tea. And um, so I'd go to a cafe and ask for a cup of tea. This was in 1993 when tea hadn't become popular then. It was just it was Lipton's or Lipton's, and it was boiled in a microwave. And I'd see them going to the microwave with a cup, and I'd be like, oh, no, I can't <laughs> I have lost my equanimity over a cup of tea. <laughs> you know, when I went to India, I, mean, I used to go to India every year for many years, love, beloved Mother India. And, um, but I, in the beginning, I, it was always very challenging for me. And the noise, the chaos, the, the complexity, the tremendous amount of suffering. And um, So in my first retreat, I just arrived, and I was really having a hard time. I was hating everything, the noise, the pollution, the sanitation, or lack of it, and just the whole thing. And I was in Bodhgaya, and where the Buddha got in line, but it was that time already a noisy village, and lots of markets, and noise, and people shouting, and music blaring, and, and I wanted this quiet retreat experience, right? You go on retreat, you think, oh, peace, you know, silence, tranquility, bliss, you know, and all I heard was just this cacophony of sound outside the temple grounds. And inside they had like a huge amount of dogs and cocks and crows and, you know, always people, build, they're always building, always building, and you know, it's just part of the deal. And um, I hated it. I just hated it. And I went to my teacher. I said, you know, I just can't stand this. I, you know, I feel like leaving with it. It's people, it's loud, and like, it's just noisy, and I just can't meditate, and I hate it, and it's not fair. And, <laughs> and uh, this particular teacher who's um, not renowned for his, um, well, he's very d- direct, let's put it that way, um, said, you know, I, I forget how we worked. I think we worked it out that my practice was going to be standing at the monastery gates, these big raw iron gates, right by where the market is and people will bathe and, you know, dogs are doing whatever. And, and I just stand there most of the day as my meditation practice, just being with the noise and the smells and the agitation and the hatred and the restlessness and thinking it, the problem is outside the gates. The problem is out there. You know, if they just, you know, would just be quiet for a while, you know, stop, you know, living, you know, <laughs> stop selling things and stop bathing and stop, you know, making chai and stop, you know, um, I would be happy, right? They're the problem. I'm fine. They're making me miserable. Ever been in that experience? <laughs> yeah, we do it like, you know, every couple of minutes. <laughs> so it was a great practice standing there just, Feeling, feeling the anger, the rage, the hatred, the projection. You know, of course, over time, I just I saw through it. It was, it was a complete fallacy that thinking that it was, the problem was out there it was clearly in my own mind. You know, and over time, the reactivity soothed and rested, and I was able to touch a really 
sweet place of equanimity. Like this is how it is. It's just sounds. It's just noise, just sounds. It's not even noise, it's just sounds. Just people living their lives. And as, as my reactivity softened, I actually felt really connected. I began to love the people who were out there. I'd miss going out there and stay. You know, I want to see what they're up to. So from that hard, guarded, attached place, you know, when we get so attached to things, you know, or attachment to our views, this should be a certain way. You should treat me like this. The government should be like that. Good luck. <laughs> Notice how these attachments cause us to res- fight, struggle with, 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 with reality. And who suffers? Well, we do, and then actually everybody suffers in a way. So I'd like us to do, um, we have a little bit of time here, we're not a lot, but um, I always end up talking way too, I, too, too long. I, I wanted to do some exercises with you, but maybe you'll have to wait another time. But maybe briefly we can do something. So... Um, I'm having a lack of equanimity with the lack of time. <laughs> um, my, my, my idea was I wanted you to just turn to the person next to you just for a couple of minutes, just to make it personal and real, because it's much more interesting when you actually make this stuff real. And just, just, ex- just say, just you know, explore a little, you know, where are the places for you that's hard to maintain equanimity? Maybe just think of one. You have to, you have to give the, most, the hardest, most embarrassing, you know, <laughs> revealing thing that you'd be mortified that anybody knew, would know. Um, like I'm going to leave my child tomorrow if she keeps on screaming. Um, just talk about one place where you are challenged to, to find equanimity and then what would support you finding equanimity. If you really don't want to do this, you can just close your eyes, and then the person next to you will have to turn the other way. So if, you, so if you've been listening to people all day in therapy or something, that's fine. You can, you, know, you can just close your eyes. But we'll take a couple of minutes just to turn around, introduce yourself, and... Um,
so wrap it up in a minute. If you could bring your conversations to a close, that would be great. You can continue them after the class. It's fine. You can, I know we've all got a lot to sh- say on this topic. So I am really sorry that we've ran out of time because I would love to hear back from some of you about... Maybe no one wants to reveal in front of 200 people the place they lose their equanimity, but... Um, Maybe I'll, I'll. Maybe next time I'm back, we'll revisit. We'll revisit this and have maybe a little more interactive, a little more explorative. Because there's a lot. There's a lot in these practices, and, and, and equanimity is one of those practices that you know teachings that's 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 often really misunderstood. You know, I I, I remember being in a group with a beloved friend and teacher Joanna Macy, who um, is a wonderful, wise teacher and very passionate. And someone asked her about, you know, well, you know, shouldn't you just be you know, have more equanimity with the world suffering and the, the fact that the environment's going down the tube? And she said, I'd rather die. You know, if, 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 my, if that meant I had a muted, dull response, I'd rather die. You know, I'm, I'm passionate because I care and I care and because I love. And I love the earth and I love people and I, I, I want to see the end of suffering. So the, 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 they coexist, this passion, this love, this tremendous wish to see suffering you know, um, ended on all levels. You know, it, it doesn't mean we sit back and go, oh, another famine. All things comes and go. People are heirs to their own karma. Everything's impermanent, so it doesn't matter. It's all just one. That is just deluded, checked out, new age speak. Um, you know, maybe some things in that. May, may, yeah, let's not go with that. But, um, <laughs> but I wanted to speak to the fact that it doesn't mean that we become checked out. We become engaged, connected. We care deeply, and, and and the more we practice, the more our hearts open. The more we become more awake human beings. That's actually what the only thing that's left is this deep, passionate care to relieve the suffering of all life, and that is. That, that is coexistent with the understanding that there is suffering, there will always be suffering. We create our own suffering and we still want to relieve the suffering. Just like we want all beings to be happy, knowing that some beings right now are eating other beings and the heart, because the heart is how it is, still wants every being to be happy. Regardless of the truth that that's impossible in this world of birth and death we still that's what the heart wishes and we and the same, the same with equanimity we know things are as they are and yet we feel we care we love so just want to make that point clear <laughs> so just a couple of announcements um, next week Nina Wise will be here and dinner will be served um, I want to mention that um, I, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, I lead these wilderness retreats. And if you want information about my wilderness retreats, this year, like a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to do a kayak meditation retreat in Baja. Uh, in the summer, I'm doing a backpack retreat up in the Sierras, in this very exquisite part of uh, the Sierras, um, a couple of hours south of Yosemite. And then I'm doing a northwest, I'm doing a camping retreat on the San Juan Islands um, in, the, in the Pacific Northwest. 
Um, I have a mailing list out in the back somewhere on the, in the foyer, so you can sign up if you want information. You can also get information about those events and that my nature work in my website, awakenthewild.com, awakenthewild.com. So um, thank you. Great to be here as always, and I'll see you in a few weeks. Thank you. Please remember to take your chairs back and to turn right out of Spirit Rock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.